Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Rachel. I'm Rachel. I'm Anoush. And I'm Ben. And on today's by-election special episode of the New Statesman podcast, we are delving deep into the results in Selby and Ainsty, Oxbridge and South Ryslip, and Somerton and Froome. I'm Rachel Cunliffe. I'm sitting in as host today since Anoush has been reporting from Somerton and Froome, so I get to turn the tables and ask her the questions. Also joining us are the New Statesman's Deputy Political Editor, Rachel Wearmouth, and our resident polling expert, Ben Walker. This has turned out to be a really exciting set of by-election results. I think there's something in it for everyone. Labour succeeded in overturning a massive Conservative majority of over 20,000 in Selby, the second biggest Tory to Labour swing in by-election history. But it failed to win the London constituency of Uxbridge, recently vacated by a certain Mr Boris Johnson, falling short by just 495 votes. Meanwhile, the Lib Dems were victorious in the West Country seat of Somerton and Froome, where the Tories had a majority of over 19,000, winning by 11,000 votes, which is a swing of 29%. What happened? How is it going to affect how the parties are feeling right now? And what does it mean for a general election? Ben, You have been up all night following this for Britain Elects and the New Statesman. What are your first thoughts? It's delighted to be here. (laughs) Welcome, Ben. Look, Somerton and Froome, Selby and Ainsty, they're sea change results. They're big shifts. They are pretty much what what the polls said. Although, to be honest, actually, the Conservatives did worse than what the polls said in Selby and Ainsty and Somerton and Froome. Labour outperformed what we were forecasting. The Lib Dem swing in Somerton is similar to what they got in Tiverton and Honiton last year. So it's really good stuff. They're showing a comeback in the West Country that we were only seeing in the 1990s. It suggests they're not just recovering. They don't just have potency in Remainer-leaning, graduate-heavy parts of England. They're coming back where they were once strong as well. So there's a bit of a big success for the Lib Dems there. Greens are starting to pick up a lot of apathetic Tories, a lot of disaffected Tories there, which bodes well for their future targets in Suffolk and such. They're not just a threat to Labour, they're, they're something a bit more multidimensional. In Selby and Ainsley, no, this was the biggest numerical majority overturned by Labour in the party's history ever. Okay, that, that, that's a big number. That's, it was the second biggest swing 
the biggest being Dudley West in 1994. It's really impressive stuff. And by, and by the way, Selby and Ainsty is, it's a big shift. It's a big swing because look, you hear this accent. I'm from Harrogate, which is a neighbouring seat. That's where I was born and bred. This is where this posh accent was forged, right? And I spent a, most, some of the most, I was baptised in the villages in the seat. My dad played cricket in the seat and, and all the rest of it. And if you're a Labour Party winning in seats where people sound like me in the north of England, that's a big shift, okay? You shouldn't be winning in North Yorkshire by as much as you are. That is, of course, to reiterate, it's more Tory failure than Labour success. But there is a Labour success happening here. It's quite significant. There are very few wards in Selby and Ainsty where there are Labour councillors or indeed any Labour activists. And they've come from nothing here. They haven't, they aren't just winning in the two major towns, Selby and Tadcaster. Like they're branching out into villages, which is a real advance on their vote. And I, I just say this about the three by-elections. We will, of course, talk about Uxbridge rightly, but there are more Selbys and Somertons than there are Uxbridges in this country. What tells you about the national narrative? Selby and Somerton. Uxbridge, you know, I don't want to say it's a flashing plan. I don't want to say it's something to completely ignore, but there are two races telling you about the national numbers, about the national feeling. Uxbridge is not one of them. We'll talk about Uxbridge a little bit later, but Anoush, you went to Somerton earlier this week. You hung out with the Lib Dem candidate there and with Ed Davey. The Tory candidate, I believe, ran away from you. But you spoke to people there on the ground about the Tories, the Lib Dems, their feelings in the constituency. Is this the kind of result you were expecting? Yes, it definitely was. I should say she didn't run away. She was sort of escorted <laughs> briskly away after I tried to speak to her three or four times. But yes, it really was what I expected to see because the Lib Dems, by the time that I got to them to interview them, which was a couple of days before the by-election day, they weren't even trying to pretend to do that thing where they were like, oh, it's very close, it's in the balance. They were just so confident. And everyone I spoke to from lifelong Conservative voters to people who would usually like to vote Labour were saying that they were going to give their vote to the Lib Dems. Some of them were saying it's to give the Tories a bloody nose or to sort of shock them because they, they're so annoyed about the state that the country was in. Some were saying, you know, I don't really know what the Lib Dems' national policies are, but, you know, it's a tactical thing to try and block the Tory candidate. So it wasn't all just a positive enthusiasm for the Lib Dems. It was perhaps more of a tactical decision. And we've seen that in previous by-elections as well, that the Lib Dems have completely stormed to victory in recently since 2021. But I would say that because this is one of their old areas, so they won Somerton and Froome off the Tories in 97, you can see that this is perhaps another sign of a resurgence for the party in their old stomping ground of the West Country. And if they do come back big here. This is what Ed Davey told me. that they, He said they can do some real damage to the Tories. So on top of those blue wall home counties, posher seats where they have less of a heritage, if they win these West Country places back, then that's going to, yeah, do real damage to the Tory chances. You in, mentioned in tactical voting there, and we've talked before about how that's really difficult to measure in the polls or to map the polls onto possible general election results because it can't show people who would support Labour, but would go for the Lib Dems if they've got more of a chance. Yes. There was a lovely visual gag that the Lib Dems were trying to do that you experienced, if you want to remind listeners of that. So when I said I was going down to Somerset, the Lib Dem press officer who I rang, 
he said, we're going to a horse sanctuary. And the idea is we're going there just so that Ed Davey can say it's a two horse race. And it's really cheesy. And the whole thing was like extremely degrading because they only had one horse in the picture at first because the people at the horse sanctuary hadn't actually been briefed that they needed two. So they had to drag another poor abandoned pony who was trying to seek sanctuary at this place into the picture. They're all very jolly. And it was an important message, which is if you were tempted to vote Labour, and actually 8,000 odd people did vote Labour in this seat at the general election, last general election, don't vote for Lib Dem because there's only two games in town, the Tories or the Lib Dems. And if you vote Labour, you might stop the Lib Dem from blocking the Tory. So that was the kind of message. That's why they were trying to say it was a two horse race. What was interesting was actually the Greens came third in this seat, which meant that Labour fell out of third place. I think they actually came fifth in the end, losing their deposit. So perhaps that message about not voting Labour this time round got through very strongly. But I do think that it was the temptation among some people to vote Green that I picked up on when I was doing Vox Popping. I think their brand, as I've written before, in rural parts of England, really appeals to people who are wanting to see better custodianship of the environment. And the brand speaks strongly to that. This is an indication of one, tactical voting is very, very potent. We should never forget this about the 1997 election, which is that in about, I think, two dozen seats, tactical voting helped bring the Progressive Party over the line. It helped the Lib Dems more than it helped Labour, but still, you're talking, yeah, 20 to 30 seats, which could have been Conservative, were not as a consequence of tactical voting. We're seeing that on a really militaristic Prussian scale in these by-elections that, of course, the Lib Dems run. And also where Labour runs as well, Lib Dems don't put in the resources, their vote doesn't get um, teed up to turn out. And when you don't do that, you go elsewhere. This is the thing when we talk about Labour in places like Mid-Bedfordshire and elsewhere. Traditionally, their vote never gets teed up. It never gets talked to. It never gets rallied by a Labour campaign. So when the by-election comes, a lot of those Labour voters, traditional Labour voters, think, what's the point? So they'll go for the actual the other pony in the race, the other horse in the race, and that often is the Lib Dems. Mid-Bedfordshire, though, this is the curious thing. Labour's are putting in resources. Labour's putting in manpower. And what that means is the Labour vote in Mid-Bedfordshire, according to that one poll, of my opinion, is staying up. It's holding firm, which is both, one, hurting the Lib Dems and allowing other parties and candidates to pick up support as well. So I don't know if you saw, remember the Mid-Bedfordshire poll. I know we're detracting a little bit. Boy, it had Labour ahead. It had an independent getting around 19%. It had the Lib Dems doing rather poorly. In seats like Somerton and Froome, Tiverton, North Shropshire, the whole much of home counties England, Labour doesn't have history there, is probably going to leave them alone. And the Lib Dems are allowed to clean up shop and probably will clean up shop at the next election. But I think there are an increasing number of countryside seats where Labour are getting bullish. Selby and Ainsley should vindicate that. And consequently, they may get into a bit of a scrap with the Lib Dems. On the night, on social media, so many Lib Dem activists just saying, well, Uxbridge shows, you know, the Lib Dems should run the thing in mid-Bedfordshire and Labour should step aside and all the rest of it. And I don't know if that says much at all. I really think mid-Bedfordshire is yet to be decided. And I don't think it will be decided on who goes for it, Labour or Lib Dems. But that could allow the Tories to come through the middle. Mid-Bedfordshire, we should say, is Nadine Dorry's constituency and she announced she was resigning but hasn't actually, as of this moment, resigned yet. So that's a by-election that is coming but we're not quite sure when it's going to be and it all depends on when she decides to actually resign, which she's not going to do until she works out why it is that she wasn't given a peerage. After the break, we'll dive into the big one, Boris Johnson's old seat of Uxbridge and South Ryslip. 
Subscribers can listen to our podcasts ad-free on the New Statesman app. It's available to download on iOS or Android. If you're not a subscriber already, what are you waiting for? Get access to all of our reporting and analysis from just £1 a week at the website newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Let's talk about Uxbridge, because this is a bit of an upset for Labour. This was the kind of London seat that was meant to be easiest for them to win. But there were signs that it wouldn't be quite as straightforward as the figures suggested. Rachel, you wrote for the New Statesman on the 5th of July, very presciently, that the Labour campaign there might be in trouble. What do you think happened? It's been a vote against Sadiq Khan's expansion of the ultra-low emission zone, essentially. The Conservative candidate, Steve Tuckwell, made his campaign entirely about that. He turned it into a referendum on ULES. This is a charge that kind of will see the drivers of the most polluting cars pay sort of £12.50 a day if they want to drive their car. During a cost-of-living crisis, it's turned out to be quite a toxic issue. And even though Danny Beale's the Labour candidate had some leeway to go out and oppose it and say, I want the Labour London mayor to delay this policy while while there's such a squeeze on household budgets. It's really just caught up with the Labour campaign and they haven't broken through in the way that they'd, they hoped they might, even though the sort of London narrative for some time has been that Labour's on the march. When you look to last year's local elections, for example, it would take in Wandsworth, Barnet, Westminster. So there was reason for people to think that there's a huge amount of momentum for Labour in London, but obviously outer London is a very, very different terrain. And that's what Labour's kind of discovered here. And I just think there's an awful lot of anger at Sadiq within the Labour campaign at the moment. But they lost out by just 495 votes and there was an almost 7% swing. They have some reasons to be positive there when it comes to the next election, but I think there's an awful lot of frustration. But it's, it's worth saying that Uxbridge didn't even turn to Labour in 1997 during um, a by-election shortly after Tony Blair's landslide. It's always been a bit of a complicated seat, but I think where Labour have really gone wrong here is just a complete failure to manage expectations and to acknowledge very early on that it actually was not a done deal for them. Yeah, I would definitely echo that the politics of these kind of outer London seats, particularly in outer West London. I grew up in Ealing, which is a sort of neighbouring borough to Hillingdon, which encompasses some of this seat. Where do you think this accent comes from, Ben? You're talking about yours. The, the politics there are complicated. Remember that Labour actually lost Harrow 
the borough of Harrow to the Tories last year, even in the context of Labour storming ahead in other London boroughs. So there are other things going on underneath the surface. There's a big British Indian population in these places, and that's something that has occasionally been exploited on the Tory side. You can see in Harrow East constituency, Bob Blackman's constituency, he uses sort of Hindu Gujarati community to try and forward arguments against Sadiq Khan, for example. So there's a lot of different politics going on in these seats, which could potentially back up Ben's description as a potential sort of flash in the pan rather than something that can necessarily be used as a symbol for elsewhere in London or elsewhere in the country. But it is something that I agree with you, Rachel W., that Labour should really have been aware of. And I think it was interesting at the New Statesman summer reception. I think Rachel Reeves got up and said she was looking forward to, you know, a Friday morning with three fewer Tory MPs in Parliament. I think this kind of triumphalist narrative ahead of the by-elections was a mistake because it has meant that Rishi Sunak can go there this morning and say, look, everything's still to play for. Yeah, among the wiser heads in the Lib Party, I think there's some concern about the outer city areas in places like like Manchester as well, who might feel slightly disconnected from some of the sort of central metropolitan areas. That's something that they've been thinking about for a while. There's also within London Labour a potential ongoing row because it's only 10 months out from Sadiq Khan's re-election campaign. And within central London, there's a bit of frustration with Sadiq in that they feel like the lion's share of the pressure will fall on them to try and rescue his re-election campaign. And then you have the dynamics in all of the outer London boroughs. I think it's significant that as soon as Danny Beale's got a bit of leeway to speak out on you, Les, that Siobhan McDonough, the Mitchum Morden MP, came straight out of the blocks and saying that she was very much against it also. So I think there's a bit of nervousness around outer London. I'm not sure how much you would read into it about the wider campaigns, really. But I think if you're a Conservative, you might look at a campaign like that where the Conservative brand was kept entirely off all of the leaflets, Rishi Sunak was kept away from the campaign in the same way that Sadiq Khan actually was, was kept away from the Labour campaign. But I think where there are single issues, where there are wedge issues and they have a very, there's very strong local feeling about certain policies, you wonder if there might be a similar approach from the Conservative Party. If we're thinking about a general election campaign, we're looking at ways that the Conservatives, who are pretty desperate at the moment, might find things to cling on to turning net zero, turning green policies into culture war, single issue fronts that they can really rally behind is the lesson from Uxbridge that is potentially a way forward and potentially successful. I mean, it's worth, I think it's worth remembering that the Greens in Uxbridge got over 800 votes. So if some of the Greens had voted Labour instead, it could have been a very narrow victory for Labour. But is there a danger that the next election gets full on the culture war issues of Labour wants to take away your cars and your gas boilers and they don't understand that it's a cost of living crisis and net zero isn't compatible with the current economic climate and that becomes a real Tory fighting point. I've just had a message from a very angry Labour advisor who was saying that while it's good enough not to be the Tories in some places like Selby, it's not enough when the fight is on an individual issue like this ULES issue in Uxbridge because this person, this source was saying that Labour doesn't have anything positive to offer in response. So I suppose the fight could get tricky in areas where a single issue is quite a motivating factor and Labour doesn't have anything to fill the void. I think Keir Starmer sort of washed his hands of the ULES issue, saying that it was a matter for London or for this seat rather than a matter for national policy. And I think that's left a bit of a vacuum. Yeah, and I think it raises questions about how you deal with devolved 
local authorities in, in, in an election campaign as well, because obviously this city hall in London is never run. And similarly with Greater Manchester, and where policies that kind of run against some of the messages of the national campaign, that's good and fertile ground for the Conservatives to make here. If there's a bit of division between the local Labour group and the central Labour campaign. When it comes to climate change issues, I think the UK's kind of escaped them becoming really nasty. In Australia, they were referred to as the climate wars, and it got really quite nasty and quite vicious. And I wonder if some of that is actually in the post for our general election campaign. Very, very quickly, because you spent too much of the last, I don't know, five years talking about him. But obviously the Uxbridge by-election was called because Boris Johnson chose to resign in quite spectacular fashion, rather than to allow MPs to vote on his suspension, which could have triggered a recall petition and a by-election in his constituency. Now, he clearly calculated that he'd probably lose that and he wanted to leave on his own terms rather than face the humiliation of being rejected by his constituents. But does this result suggest that he should have had the nerve to fight it out? Potentially, yeah. I think it's instructive that the Labour Party did not make Boris Johnson as an individual politician an issue in the campaign. They kept him away from it, didn't put Boris Johnson in his mountain of sleaze on all of their leaflets. I I love that, mountain of sleaze. They didn't use any of that because their judgment was that there were a lot of people locally who actually feel that he was done over by the system. So that would tell you that if Boris Johnson, who was always been a very successful campaigner, had stood, then yeah, I think he stood a very good chance of, of holding it. But I think that tells you something about him that he wasn't prepared to take that risk and would prefer to flounce off at the time. Yeah, but you probably you definitely could have, the result would have suggested that he definitely could have held it. Yeah, that's another part of the complicated politics of these places. I think people, you know, remember voting for Boris Johnson as London mayor, for example, and they might feel fondly about that period of the sort of Johnson era, even if they were a little disappointed about how he managed the country as prime minister. So there is a sort of residual fondness I sometimes find in these kind of scenes. Yeah, although on the other hand, that, you know, with ULES as the central issue of the campaign, Boris Johnson, who, when he was London mayor, first introduced the ultra low emission zone. It's actually quite hard to judge, isn't it? But given how good he is at campaigning, he probably could have held on to it in these circumstances. We should remember for all that there's going to be a lot of Labour hand-wringing, this is still a terrible result for the Conservatives. Quite an interesting result for Rishi Sunak, though. Going into this week, if he'd lost all three of them, he would have been the first Prime Minister since 1968 to lose three by-elections on the same day. Obviously, they clung on in Oxbridge, but we've already talked about the kind of seismic majorities that were overturned in Selby and Somerton. How despairing should the Tories be at the moment? And also, what does this do for Rishi Sunak? So we had John Oxley writing for the New Statesman this week on the fact that he wrote, ironically, the worse the showing, the more secure Rishi Sunak could be. His argument being that if he lost all three of them, no Conservative would want to challenge him for the leadership. They just think there's no hope. Let's wait a bit. But if they manage to win one, maybe there's a chance for a challenger Ben, do you think there's any hope for the Tories in these in these results? Anything hopeful? No, nope. <laughs> it's really not great. Perhaps it's my own partisan prejudices talking. I don't know. No, it's not. Look, you look at the national numbers. The national polls are the worst they've been for a good while now. And I'll ju- just a nice little historical comparison for you here. Nineteen seventy-six. It was being it was becoming pretty obvious that the Labour government under Harold Wilson, then James Callaghan, wasn't going to do particularly well. Margaret Thatcher, by the way, started quite poorly as leader of the Conservative Party. She didn't come in with great panache. She started quite poorly. There were two by-elections in 76. 
Grimsby. It was a seat the Conservatives really went hard to take and they almost took it because it was a marginal and they failed. In Ashfield, it was a seat, a safe Labour seat that the Conservatives swept away. And it really illustrated the national dissatisfaction with the then Labour government and bode well for the Tories a few years down the line. And it seems to be We've just had something quite similar here, because if anyone goes to Grimsby, it's got a local identity, quite a bit of an industry with fishing and perhaps local issues kept Grimsby for Labour then. I don't remember, funnily enough. So there's that. And it feels like we're having something similar here. Anything for the government, there really isn't. Look, you are 20 something points behind in the polls. You are behind on the economy, something you have never been behind on since 2007 when Labour was winning elections. Your leader, Rishi Sunak, is trailing Keir Starmer, it's hard to sometimes say because we like to call, you know, Keir Starmer a wet wipe, rightly in the eyes of some members of the public. But still, you are trailing the Labour Party, you're trailing the Labour leader on three fundamental metrics that say to voters, how are you going to vote at the next election? Because voting intentions come and go. The polls come and go. You saw big Labour leads with Neil Kinnock. You saw big Labour leads with Ed Miliband for some reason. But you never saw Labour leads with either of those two leaders on the economy or leadership likability, or a perception of competence. We don't, the fundamentals haven't really changed here. Labour shouldn't be winning Selby and Ainsty. They shouldn't be doing as well as they have, okay? That's not a protest vote. That's something quite bigger. And I should say, we are due boundary changes. The next election will be fought on new seats. The Selby and Ainsty seat is, was quite hard stuff for Labour, really, because there's a lot of those Anglo-Saxon villages they're nice to live in, but not Labour voting, not Labour voting at all. So for Labour to win there is quite something. But the boundary changes in Selby, they make it a lot better for Labour because it it stops becoming this broccoli tree and fattens out to include bits of leads. And that's just going to be a lot better for Labour. And I dare say Keir Mather will perhaps be an MP in the next parliament, whereas Johnny Mercer, who insulted him last night, won't. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my colleagues, Anusha Kellyan, Rachel Wearmouth, and Ben Walker. Come back tomorrow for our weekend audio long read, Quinn Slobodian's fascinating reported feature, How Saudi Arabia is Buying the World. We're produced by Chris Stone. 2012 